If you want to spend less time going to the grocery store, then you need to check out ButcherBox. It's a super convenient way to find high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust. ButcherBox only sells 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. And you know what all that means. No antibiotics or added hormones, so you get peace of mind that you're eating healthy food. On top of all that, ButcherBox makes shopping simpler because it gets delivered right to your doorstep. Shipping is always free, and you can customize your meal plan so you're only getting exactly what you want. We've tried everything from pork chops to tenderloins at our house, and they're always a huge hit. ButcherBox prices are as good or better than what you can find at the store, plus they have exclusive member deals, as well as a ton of recipes, cooking tips, and other kitchen hacks to choose from. So sign up at ButcherBox.com LISC and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. So sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash LISK, L-I-S-K, and use code LISK to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus $20 off your first order. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into The Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in The Daily Book Club. Mopac Audio. Thank you for joining us on LISC, the Long Island Serial Killer podcast. Today is part two of our discussion with Gus Garcia Roberts. He is a Washington Post journalist and the author of the book, Jimmy the King, about the former disgraced Suffolk County Chief of Police, James Burke. And in our discussion today, you'll hear, kind of given what we've learned, when Rex should have been caught and why it didn't happen until more than a decade later. And if you haven't listened to part one, we suggest you start there for context. Soon after... The bodies are found, and Amber, it was only two months later, they had tips on this ogre, this guy who had shown up the day before to the house, before she disappeared. They had the lead on the avalanche soon after, right? Months. Yeah. And then, which, like you pointed out, it's a somewhat unique car. I mean, I've now noticed them everywhere because it's... I know, same here. (laughs) Yeah. Just because it's in my brain, but they are pretty unique. And then not long after that, 2012, they get all this cell phone data from the FBI and still, from what we can tell, do nothing with it. They, you know, they had them kind of narrowed down to Massapequa Park. That combined with the avalanche, you know, I mean, you're looking at a handful of people, but it still doesn't get solved. So by the time 2015 rolls around, Vincini is put in as police chief because Burke is out. Can you start talking about then in that timeline from there and why, you know, even with this data and even with fresh blood on this case, things are not happening? What what did you see there in your research for this latest article? Sure. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, you know, late 2015, 
is when the feds have sort of fatally, you know, closed in on, on Burke and he, and he resigns. It's around the same time that Tim Sinney is named as commissioner of the PD. And Tim Sinney is a, at that point, 35 year old federal prosecutor. And he's sort of seen as the person who is going to bring some sort of stability to this department and law enforcement jurisdiction that's in complete disarray. And so he has this very odd transition for years. He's, Cindy is the commissioner. Tom Spoda, who had just spent years helping James Burke cover up these crimes from the federal government, is still DA. And so you have this really kind of like awkward phase. Uh, ultimately, Spoda is indicted and then Tim Sinney runs for DA and he takes Spoda's vacated seat. And Sinney is DA um, until he himself loses an election in late 2021. So he's somebody who had a, a big chunk of time at the top ranks of PD and, and a big chunk of time with this case, with this investigation. So late 2015 through all of 2021. And that period has always sort of been presented previously as kind of like a competent period in Suffolk County law enforcement as far as the Gilgo Beach uh, investigation goes. That's partly due to Sinny himself since leaving office. You know, he's done, and, and also since Rex Heuerman was arrested, he's done a lot of interviews where he has sort of touted um, a high-tech investigation that his office undertook that he has kind of presented as, as leading, as making all of the investigative steps, you know, that led to ultimately his predecessor, sorry, his successor, uh, Ray Tierney, honing in on Hureman and closing the case. But myself and my, my colleague, Alexandra Heal, uh, at the Washington Post, she went out to Long Island. We worked the phones, you know, we, we were essentially trying to learn about the missteps in, in the law enforcement investigation going back years. And, you know, we spoke to more than 20 people who were directly involved in this investigation, either um, as, as elected officials or law enforcement investigators or on the legal side. And what we found, you know, was, was really surprising. And that was essentially that the dysfunction never ended during Sinny's tenure. What, what we learned was that, you know, Sinny had this kind of high-tech investigation that he was attempting to spearhead from the DA's office, where for once they were finally, you know, attempting to cooperate with the FBI. They were using the cell phone data that had been neglected. For one, they did tower dumps, and they were they were kind of religious about the data shows us that this guy lives in a area of Mass Pico Park you know, and commutes to midtown Manhattan, let's hone in on the data more. So like, you know, they brought high tech equipment, including this like device that you, you know, you put in a vehicle and you drive around and it will like simulate where the cell phone pings off of which tower pings off of. And through that, those methods like that, they were able to hone in on a much smaller area where they thought this guy lived. So they are, they were pursuing this like sort of data driven state-of-the-art in Cindy's mind investigation but you know their necessary partners in this investigation were the Suffolk County Homicide Squad and the, the Homicide Squad works in the PD which like is a separate agency from Cindy's office the DA's office 
And the the homicide squad I learned was basically an open rebellion of of Cindy's methods. And so prosecutors were trying to get detectives to take this like long list of residents in these homes in this area in which they were interested in and investigate, you know, all of the men that had lived in uh, in those homes during the period of the murders. And the homicide squad didn't like being told what to do. They felt like Tim Sinney uh, was ordering them to investigate people that they had already ruled out. They didn't really trust the data that, that Sinney was relying on. They wanted to investigate people outside of the, that small Mass Beagle Park area. The lead detective on the case, his name is Patrick Portella. He was appointed during the Burke era. So he had nearly a decade of experience investigating this case you know by all accounts he had kind of an encyclopedic knowledge of this case you know there, there was something called the gilgo room which is what the investigators worked out of and it was full of file cabinets and hundreds of thousands if not millions of pages of documents and apparently you know portella kind of he could you bring up a suspect he knows where that document is right he knows everybody going back to the beginning of the case although you know well it's pretty damning then they didn't know about the chevy avalanche isn't it so you basically have this open mutiny and one of the biggest problems which one once we sort of honed in on this we went to city and brought this up with him and he you know for the first time he kind of acknowledged that there was this major dysfunction going on during his administration and he put it all on the homicide squad, particularly Portella, who he said, you know, would not cooperate with the FBI, uh, you know, the FBI investigators partnering with them on the case. And he said that Portella, um, uh, that it got, to, it got so bad that the FBI basically told him, we're not going to work, we're not going to spend any more resources on the Gilgo Beach investigation until you get rid of Portella. So he said he attempted to demote, to take Portella off of the investigation multiple times. The PD, particularly, I, 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 from what I can gather, Portella's kind of allies in the homicide unit, those overseeing the homicide unit, fought back. And so you have a case that essentially stalled out. One of the things that we found that, that, that was really interesting, I think kind of shows both sides here, right? It was that they that they had, that the DA's office had a suspect that they were pretty hot on. And this was an ex-cop uh, who lived in Massapequa Park. Um, those, you know, who are, who are familiar with the case know well about this belt that was, you know, first kind of publicly disclosed in recent years by the PD in which initials on the belt. And that was found, you know, we, we knew that it was connected to the case. We now know that it was used to bind one of the victims. So obviously an extremely important piece of evidence. This ex-cop's name matched those initials. Um, and there was a, a couple other things that the investigators seized on, but either way, this became, you know, their sort of the DA's office top suspect based largely on the fact that he lived in this suspect area and that his, you know, his initials matched the belt. And homicide investigators did not consider this guy a suspect. And they did not want to, they, they felt that he had been ruled out, that they had ruled him out. And they did not want to pursue him and this happened in 2021, which, as those aligned with the homicide unit pointed out to me, was was a uh, Tim City election year. You know, they claimed that he was that he was very eager to to get a break in this case, 
before the election. And so you, you know, th this, this one suspect who has a, you know, I want to make as clear as possible by all indications, he had nothing to do with this. And he was just a guy who may or may not even know he was a suspect. We, we tried, we tried to reach him and, and, and did not hear back. It was an example of how the case really kind of broke down. And I think you can read from that, you know, if you're aligned with the homicide detectives, you can read from it. Well, yeah, I mean, look, the DA's office is trying to get them to pursue somebody who was, who by all indications was totally innocent, you know, so the D, so the detectives were right. If you read it from the prosecutor's side, it's like, well, that's part of investigating. You got to rule out people and the detectives were unwilling to just put in that work to rule out people, you know, in a scientific manner rather than based on, on their hunches. But, you know, no matter whose side you sort of fall on or if you fall on either side, like the result is it's the exact same sort of dysfunction that plagued this case from the beginning. And, and it was sort of disturbing to hear that, you know, that dysfunction had plagued the case for those several years that Cindy was in charge. And from what we can gather, speaking to current law enforcement officials, that Cindy's period also was considered a lost period as far as this investigation goes. And current law enforcement officials said essentially that they honed in on Rex Heuerman based on nothing but stuff that was already in the case file before the first year that Burke took office, more than 10 years ago, you know, and and so essentially all those years in between were, were lost investigatively. And, you know, eventually Patrick Portella, the, the lead detective, was ultimately taken off the case. And from what we were told, you know, that was because his supervisor did not want to take him off the case, but his supervisor was threatened with a demotion and a pay cut if he did not. So you really see a very kind of serious cold war going on between the DA's office and the police department. Yeah, it's, it's shocking when you have this kind of information. It's just ridiculous. And so Portello, who I know you guys reached out to and he did not give comment on, he's retired since retired, I believe. Yeah. So he was a, a Burke appointee, kind of a holdover. And, you know, I like what you said that, you know, it depends if, if you're looking at it from the AG's office or from the homicide unit, you can kind of read into it. But, you know, if Portello was so good at this and he knew so much about the case, what was going on? Like in, in terms of why, why was he... Why was he ultimately taken off the case? Yeah, and just why is he not solving it when there's so much pointing to one area, one truck? You know, there's so much there that if he's so good at it, like, why is he dragging his feet so much? Yeah, well, I mean, the homicide unit in Suffolk County PD is a kind of unique animal. Like, these are, these are very more so than really any other jurisdiction I've seen. These are really powerful cops. They're extremely highly paid. I believe I believe Portella made $260,000 his last year in the department. You know, they're politically powerful. They have sort of unofficial endorsements of politicians that sometimes counter with the police union endorsement of politicians. And they're outspoken and they're proud, you know, and I think that in this case, a lot of them didn't trust this 30-something DA and his, you know, Sinny uh, had a special counsel who he put in charge of the case in 2020, uh, who's this guy, Howard Master, who, uh, who was also a former federal prosecutor. And I think the detectives didn't trust him. 
uh, you know, they saw him as kind of this Yale-educated outsider who did not have actual law enforcement experience as they saw it. And so, you know, I think that the way that I started to see it, it was a battle between high tech and low tech. And the DA's office was just totally believing in this, you know, what, what Tim Sinney started calling what, what he calls the polygon, which is they initially had a box that was a large swath of area encompassing Massapequa Park where they knew from cell data that the killer probably lived. And using all these high tech toys, Cinny was able to kind of tailor the edges so it became a, a much smaller polygon. And he was all believing that the killer was, a, was, a, was in that polygon. And the detectives, the, homis- the Suffolk County Homicide Unit, th- these are not high tech investigators for the most part. Some of them may have technical policing experience, you know, in modern days, but like the history of the Suffolk County Homicide Squad is one where you're, you're sort of trying to crack criminal minds, right? I mean, I mentioned before, like they used to rely only on, inve- uh, on confessions. You know, that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. (coughs) Shopify is your POS command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that unites your in-person and online sales into one seamless process. Easily track every sale across your business and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. You can take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify POS Go mobile device. Easy peasy. And if there's ever a question, Shopify's award-winning support is there to answer your questions. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lisk, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lisk to take your retail business to the next level today. One last time, go to shopify.com slash lisk. In your book, don't you reference, they kind of had these shirts that were like 95% conviction rate Yeah, that they bragged about how they could get anyone to confess. There was a state commission that investigated them and, and came out, you know, as well as other investigations, very damning statistic, which was, I believe it was 97% uh, at this point where the homicide unit solved 97% of its cases using confessions which was way out of the norm for the country. And I think to experts who said, there's no way that you can get 97% confession rate. That's a clear indication that, that there are poor methods being used here to get those confessions. It's just impossible. And, mm-hmm. and, but, but the, the homicide detectives took pride in that. And, and I'm glad you brought that up. It really kind of shows the culture. And so like at picnics, they, would, they wore a t-shirt that said 97%, kind of like thumbing their nose at these investigators. They were proud that they got the, that, that that's how they closed all their cases. And so, you know, you kind of see like this perfect, like the bodies on the beach were kind of a perfect foil, right? I mean, because you got perhaps multiple killers, degraded bodies, some decades old, 
burlap, you know, a really convoluted crime scene. You know, you have all this stuff that cries out for, like, forensics and high-tech policing. And, like, this unit, that was not their history at all. Like, this unit was always these sort of, like, silverback homicide detectives who, like, took great pride in, like, their ability to sniff out a, a suspect and then typically get that suspect to admit he did it. And you can't do that if you don't have a suspect. And they didn't have one for years in this case that was at all viable. So like that, that's sort of how I, that's how I came to see it was, was kind of this war between high tech and low tech investigators. But the really damning thing, I think for, for both sides, but probably more so for the homicide investigation side is the most low tech lead, a piece of paper that said Chevy Avalanche on it was just sitting in your files and you neglected it, right? I mean, yeah. so so what, this whole time that the DA's office and the PD was squabbling over stuff that, as it turns out, you know, for example, over this suspect who, as it turns out, had nothing to do with these killings, like you were neglecting both sides, were neglecting this lead that when Ray Tierney took office in 2022, you know, he, he had his investigators, he had a task force. The first thing they did was have a task force look over leads and then look over every piece of evidence and document in the case is what he said. And a state trooper who hasn't been named, but a, a female state trooper who was, you know, kind of quietly the hero in this case, I would say so far, she found this avalanche lead and, and within, you know, by March 2022, within months of the task force being formed, they had honed in on Rex Hurman and really the next 16 months was just spent strengthening the case against Rex Hurman via DNA comparison and, you know, getting in on all these various devices and things like that. Yeah. And I just want to make sure everyone should go check out Gilgo Beach Killer Hunt Slowed by Infighting Between Prosecutors and Police. That is the article that Gus and Alexandra wrote for the Washington Post. And there's a bunch in there, but a few things stood out to me. And one of them was, and it kind of goes back a little bit, but you talked to three homicide detectives, I hope I get this right, that had been on the case that knew nothing about the Chevy Avalanche tip that came in. Yeah, we, you know, that, that was one of our initial, that was one of our initial things was trying to make sense of that. You know, the, the, the bail application is a little vague. You, you get the feeling that the prosecutors who wrote it, you know, led by Ray Tierney, that they were attempting to obfuscate in a way that, you know, not give away too much information, more information than they had to. Because it's not entirely clear for example, it's not it's not totally clear from reading the document that, that that they had that tip back then. But we spoke to Ray Tierney and he said yes, they had all of that information back then. And so we were just kind of trying to figure that out. And so we spoke, you know, we tried to contact homicide supervisors and investigators from back then and it didn't offer any clarity. You know, all of, they were all sort of like saying that they were saying that, you know, they did not that they don't remember that tip that a supervisor who took over the case in 2011 said that to the best of his knowledge, he was not kind of conveyed that information by his predecessors, you know, from, and that tip would have came in just a year before. Yeah. And so he would, he, you know, he expressed kind of bafflement at that and said, you know, it's totally weird. And he doesn't understand, you know, we were trying to hone in on that and we kind of got no answers we there's there's a lot of finger pointing there's a lot of suggestions that you know maybe we didn't have that tip back then 
from all indications, unless unless the bail document is completely deceiving and Ray Tierney is lying, which I don't see why he would, you know, they did have that tip back then. And so now it's kind of just evolved into like deflection and finger pointing and probably just some sincere kind of frustration and bafflement on those on the part of those those people involved in the investigation back then as to like, we really don't know what this was and we don't know how we missed it. And that's really kind of scary and sad. Well, and we can confirm some of this stuff, not that it needs it, but, you know, we had talked to Dominic Verone, the chief of detectives, who was on the case back before Burke took over, but he also talked about being fired um, without being right. debriefed, without handing over anything. They're like, we don't need it. Clear your desk out, you're gone. So that right there points to them, you know, overlooking, crapping on leads. So given what you know, and you know, we're kind of armchair quarterbacking a little bit, but given the avalanche lead, given the cell phone data, and just regular policing, when do you think this could have been solved, giving them some grace too? Like, what do you think? Um, I think 2012, right? I mean, yeah. you know, they had, by then they had the Chevy avalanche lead, they had the witness statements describing him, they had by then the report was completed that that would have honed them in on on Massapequa Park and yep. and like that's what what I've been told by current law enforcement officials direct knowledge of the case is like that's all they use they use that report from 2012 and they use the Chevy Avalanche lead and so then they said you know as, as you've covered on the podcast before okay who owns Chevy Avalanche who at that point owned a Chevy Avalanche in Massapequa Park. And that led them to a list. I don't know how long that list was, but they started back. It was not as long as like the list of that city was going off of, right? Which was yeah. just how many how many homes are there in this in this polygon? And so they had a short list. It did not take them long at all, from what I can gather, to to go from that point to Rex Hurman. And then the way that they sort of cemented the case was through DNA, which was also using hairs that, you know, they had from the beginning that were on evidence. And then, you know, that DNA analysis and mitochondrial DNA, that's a technology that has existed since the 90s. So they, they you know, it's not like that developed in the last 10 years and allowed them to do that. They, they could have done that. So, like, there's really no reason that I can gather and this is, you know, something that current law enforcement officials, you know, have, have acknowledged. There's no reason that this could not have been solved 11 years ago. You know, I, I think what's really kind of stunning about this is is we always knew this case was a morass, right? And, you 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 know, there's always indications that, that it was mishandled. But I think, speaking for myself, I always also thought, well, it's a really difficult case, right? I mean, it's like... Yeah. And like the killer must be very sophisticated, and I think that's part of the reason why why like people landed on it must be a cop, because like this guy must know law enforcement methods so well that he's able to evade. I'm not saying this is like a simple a simple case to solve, but like clearly it's complicated. You got possible multiple killers. The setting seems really difficult to navigate. Mm -hmm. You know, um, red herrings abound, but like. I think what's really kind of stunning about the arrest of Rex Hurman is it has revealed that this was not a particularly difficult case as far as serial killer cases go to solve. And that, that all along it was just 
botched in ways we didn't even know about, you know, and yeah. and that's stunning. Well, and of course, it's he's alleged, you know, I'll go ahead and repeat that just so we're all saying it. Of course. But I think you're absolutely right. And we have talked to law enforcement that are connected to the case or have worked with SCPD. And two things stood out to me that they've told us is that they kind of like the old school thing. You know, they they don't need the tech. There's kind of this like, look, we might be the highest paid and have the most resources, but we still go on a lot of gut instinct type of stuff, which, you know, I mean, obviously that's part of policing, but, you know, we have been told like they are old school. You can run in a county or in a city, we've been told, you know, like how many avalanches are in Massapequa Park? And in two hours, you have that information back. And like you said, we don't know that how big that list is, but it's smaller than the list they had. The big thing that you guys allude to in your article is that what does this mean? Like, we don't know yet if he kept killing, but it seems like, you know, he didn't just stop. We don't think. Who knows? But if he did keep killing, like, that's blood on SCPD's hands. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of the big question, you know, that I think we'll really kind of, if, if we ever know, right, we'll, we'll kind of drive home just how, how big of a, a mess up this was what was the killer doing during all these years that this case was was not solved and and also you know i mean the the work is like far from over right i mean for one like they haven't even put the fourth murder that they suspect uh human for they haven't they haven't charged him with it there's at least six bodies that are still unsolved you know human uh does not appear at least yet to be considering a plea in this case he's going to trial if that doesn't change so there's so much work to be done and, and honestly one of the things that kind of stunned us and, and you know we tried to show this in in the article to some extent because you see like the county executive steve ballone preempting a press conference that the da ray tierney was going to hold by instead setting up his own lectern outside of rex Hurman's house that morning even though from what we had been told, Ballone was was kept out of the investigation and not even informed about Hureman's arrest until the day that it, it occurred. And so you sort of, you already see, in addition to the finger pointing, you see, you know, battles over credit and you just see all this petty stuff. It's, it's just, it's, it's so petty. And, and it's sort of like, guys, nothing, has anything changed? You know, you still have an, an open serial killer case. Like mm-hmm. maybe just like continue to actually do law enforcement rather rather than petty petty squabbling and so like that's that was also something that sort of surprised i wouldn't say surprised that was something that we found notable is that is that this kind of like warring in between agencies out there is is continuing uh even now it is shocking and yeah you know there's still the las vegas angle there's still the south carolina angle there's a lot to that needs to be done is there anything that yeah. we that we haven't discussed? I think I think it'll just be interesting to see kind of how this unfolds. It, it feels like there's this whole dysfunction, the dysfunction going back years, is kind of like a dream for a defense attorney, including yeah. you know Rex Rex Uerman's defense attorney. Defense attorneys love alternate suspects that that law enforcement jurisdictions were hot on. They love public disagreements uh, about like the basic facts of the case, which occurred in this case. The DA Tom Spoda had had argued with publicly with the then commissioner of police about 
how many killers there were in this case. And and you can only imagine what's in the discovery that like Huerman's lawyer just got and how many uh, missteps there were. And, and you, I mean, Huerman could very well plead guilty or he could go to trial. And I imagine a lot of this stuff will be aired as part of his defense. So it'll be interesting to kind of see how these disagreements between top law enforcement officials in Suffolk County kind of manifest themselves in his defense. Well, we appreciate all the insight and, uh, you know, let's keep in touch as things develop because uh, it'll be interesting to see what does come out because you wonder if the families have some sort of dereliction of duty case, you know, against SCPD. I know that's hard to pull off. Um, they're pretty protected. Um, law enforcement is. Right. Um, and sometimes for good reason, but I think in this case, it definitely shows like hopefully there's some accountability. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely been an ex- extraordinary case of mismanagement. You know, I think that's pretty clear. Hey, thanks for finally pulling this off and maybe we'll do it down the road again as new stuff happens. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Thanks brother. Have a good one. Yep. Bye. Bye. Thanks for being with us. And a big thank you to Gus Garcia Roberts. And really, if you want to understand what was going on in Suffolk County so that a suspect with so many ties to the case can basically be ignored, you have to read it. It's called Jimmy the King. And be on the lookout for our next episode, an insightful discussion with Robert Kolker, author of the book on the case, Lost Girls. This has been a Mopac Audio production. I am your host, Chris Moss. Our senior producer is Shannon McGarvey. Our executive producers are Jonathan Beale and Jonathan Nowazarden and music by Blake Maples. The views, speculation, conjecture, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, and the hosts. They do not reflect or represent the policy or views held by Mopac Audio LLC or any broadcaster of this podcast. Any and all suspects discussed on this podcast are considered innocent until guilt is established in a court of law and any allegations, speculation, opinion, or conjecture about any suspect is subject to such presumption of innocence.